was being addressed in the church was whether or not they could or should still go to pagan temples, uh, perhaps with pagan family or pagan friends, and share these temple meals, which were often meals to honor Greek gods, including eating food and drink that had been in the meal, uh, sacrificed uh, by faith in these gods, sacrificed, not necessarily burned away, but sacrificed, dedicated to these uh, pagan gods in some way. Or whether they could go into the marketplace, your uh, fresh foods or your giant, and, um, and, and, and eat the meat that oftentimes this meat had been dedicated or offered to a Greek god. God. So what could they do about this intense culture of paganism around them when it came to these meals and eating and drinking? And Paul tells them pretty clearly, it's just such a, it's a beautiful handling pastorally of the freedom we have in Christ and the purpose of that freedom in Christ as Paul unpacks it. He essentially tells them that although idols don't really exist, there's no such thing as the God Zeus, there's no such thing as the God Mars or Aphrodite, um, and, and offering meat to such a non-existent deity does nothing to the meat. The beef is still beef. The pork is still pork. He, he exhorts them that if they want to truly love their neighbor, they must be careful, though, not to do anything which might lead that unbelieving friend or family to think that believers in Christ condoned or approved the worship of idols. So basically, he says, you're free to eat any food, because there's no such thing as idols and all food belongs to the Lord. It all comes from him. It's all for you. But if someone thinks that by your eating it, you're approving the worship of these gods, then don't eat it. So he says it this way in verse 24 of chapter 10. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold to you in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In other words, get the steak. Don't ask if it was offered at the temple. Eat it. You have liberty. You have freedom. And he says, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, quoting from the Psalms. But if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you. Again, it doesn't matter what they did with the meat before you got there, offered it to somebody. He says, without raising any question on the ground of conscience, don't even go there, just eat, enjoy it, be with them, befriend them. It's a beautiful picture of our freedom in Christ. But here's the beautiful comprehensive nature of balancing it out. He says, but if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. And for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. Don't let him think in his conscience that it's okay to do this. Let his conscience be affected by your withholding eating that meat because it's been offered to Apollo, lest he think you approve of the worship of Aphrodite or Apollo or Zeus. And he clarifies, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience. In other words, you have freedom to eat whatever you want to eat. And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So the whole goal here isn't to self-inflict suffering on yourself. It's to love 
and where you don't need to raise a question about this steak, eat the steak, eat the burger. If someone says, oh, this is dedicated to Apollo, let's worship Apollo through this burger. And you say, oh, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that for the sake of love, for the sake of loving them, for the sake that their conscience wouldn't uh, think that you approve what should be disapproved. So the, the believer is free to eat any food unless someone thinks that by the Christian eating it, they approve of idolatry. And it might make your pagan neighbor feel comfortable, Paul says, to think that you approve their idolatry. It might make you feel comfortable in the moment too in your friendship with them, but it would not be good for them. It would not be good for them. So as a Christ follower, it was necessary for love's sake to translate the gospel into a witness in what you approved by what you ate or drink. And, and this is, by the way, I'm not gonna go deep into this today, though we will go into this when we get deeper into Romans. This is an aside on why social issues like attending the celebration of a gay wedding or referring to a man according to pronouns that feed into his desire to be a woman are largely answered by asking the question, what will people think I'm approving? If I do this, in other words, by attending a gay wedding, will people think that you're approving of that marriage? Or by calling a man by a woman's pronoun, will they think that you're affirming the authority to find our own gender apart from biological reality and ultimately God's authority? Then I think the answer is generally most people will likely see attendance or speech as implicit approval. So, but that's another sermon for another day, which we do need to get to. But, but it, it really helps us with the question, what is most loving? What is most loving for this person? And most loving, not for their present comfort, but for their eternal good. And are we willing to do what is most loving for their eternal good and for the witness of Christ? But, but back to this text and the context of paganism, undergirding Paul's argument is, is something surprising and a little bit, it, it's actually very sobering because he takes us into a deeper reality behind these pagan meals and he brings in the Lord's Supper to highlight it. And that's why we're using this, this text to talk about the Lord's Supper. In verse 19, he says, <clears throat> what do I mean then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no, there's no such thing as idols. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, what I mean is that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now he's speaking, I think, most specifically to a group of people in the church that actually thought it was fine to actually participate in these religious ceremonies. They're not going into the meal wondering, what should I do, what should I not do? They're like, yeah, it's, it's okay. I, I believe in Jesus, but I can support them in their belief of Apollo and, and do their ritual with them and think it's fine. And, and he says, you need to understand what's really going on here. The meat that's being offered to this idol, it's not affected. There's no idol. It's still meat. But the heart of the person offering the meat to an idol is undergoing something profound, even if they don't know it. They're communing. They're befriending. They're sharing fellowship with demons. That's what Paul says is going on behind this sacrifice, this ritual dinner. This is because 
the whole pagan system was inspired by demonic influence. Fallen angels seeking to destroy mankind's relationship with God were at work behind the pantheon of paganism, of Roman and Greek gods, seeking to deny and blaspheme God's glory as well by leading people into this fantasy that denied the truth, denied the reality of the universe and of its creator. And Paul says that when a pagan involves themselves in this ritual, they participate, they share, they fellowship with demons. That word participate or participant, it comes from the Greek word koinanos or koineia, and it means a sharer in, a companion of, a partaker of. So when a pagan ate food sacrificed to an idol, they thought that God was present. They thought Zeus, most, a lot of times they would think Zeus is there, He's in our company. He's to be honored. He's going to be pleased with this offering. But there was no Zeus. The demonic was there, not Zeus. And they were actually communing with spirits behind the lie of Zeus. And the relationship with demonic influence, demonic spirits, was being mediated and furthered and deepened through the lies and the heart of honor toward that deity that was fueling that meal. And this has a lot of, raises a lot of questions about our our current culture, what we give our heart to, and what's going on behind what we give our heart to. But, But Paul unveils something really profound as he brings in the, the preciousness of communion here. He says this in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, he asks, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is, this is really incredible truth about what is really happening when we take the Lord's supple, a Supper. It is a, Paul says, participation in the body and blood of Christ. Participating again, it's that same word rooted in koinia. It, it, it is a partaking of, a sharing in, a fellowshipping with. If false worship engenders the attention Listen, if false worship engenders the attention and the presence of the demonic, how much more will true worship of the true God, who Paul says is jealous for our worship. He's not indifferent to it. He's eager, he's jealous. He longs for the worship that's due to him from our hearts. How much more, if demons are attentive at sacrifices to Zeus, how much is more is Jesus attentive to his people when they celebrate his body and his blood in humility? Jesus is spiritually here with us right now as we take this sign of his body and his blood.
there is something profoundly holy to be treasured happening here. And we should approach the Lord's Supper with reverence because the Lord is here. Calling us to participate and share with him in what he has done for us. And because he cares deeply about what we're celebrating. In a few paragraphs in the next chapter, Paul will even make the point that the Corinthians disregard their they're not taking to heart what was really going on in communion was leading to sickness and even death because some of them were using the, the occasion of communion, which, which actually included for them a big, huge meal, like a serious lunch, serious feast. And they were using the occasion to get drunk and to mistreat the poor in their midst. And God was actively disciplining them And Paul says, in effect, you're sinning against the body and blood of Christ when you despise communion like this, when you treat your brothers and sisters like this, when you get drunk. And he says, actually, don't have those big feasts anymore. (laughs) He tells them to eat at home. And that's kind of how we got to this place where for for 2,000 years, communion has been a very lean meal. (laughs) It's usually not accompanied by big feasts. There's nothing wrong with the feast. People were misusing it. So he says, don't even let yourselves be tempted by the beer kegs that are there at your feast. One beer might be okay, but you guys are having like three or four. Do you know what's going on here when you gather together? So in the same vein as we see Paul here say that we participate, a share in, have a share in his body and blood. And, and as we remember Jesus' words, that this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, and do this in memory of me. As we remember that admonition, that in communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. God is telling us there is a particular holy focus in the Lord's Supper. We, we especially affirm today Every time we take communion, our share in the body and blood of Christ given for us, our participation, our share, our fellowship with, our embrace of and receiving the benefits of the body and blood of our Savior given over to us. All the new covenant blessings won by that blood. why Paul uses these words, why Jesus used these words. Remember, remember, remember what? My blood poured out for you. My body broken for you. Proclaim, proclaim. What do we proclaim? The Lord's death until he comes. So we remember, we proclaim, and we cherish that Jesus' body and blood have been given over to death for our sin. And hallelujah, that body and blood has fully satisfied God's justice against our sin. All of it. We remember, we proclaim, we cherish that that Jesus' body and blood given over to death for our sins has won for us forgiveness and peace with God forever. We remember, we cherish, we proclaim 
that Jesus' body and blood given over for us has won our justification. We stand righteous. I don't feel very righteous today. Probably many of you do not feel very righteous today. But that is what God declares over us because of Jesus, righteous through my son. Because his body and blood are that valuable. We remember, we proclaim and cherish that Jesus' body and blood have won for us the blessings of the new covenant, chief among them, a new heart that loves God, not perfectly, but truly, indwelt by his very Holy Spirit. He lives in us individually and together as a family When we take the cup and eat the bread, we're affirming our sharing in his body and blood and all the blessings that have been won for us through his body and blood. And and most of all, in that new covenant blessing of his indwelling spirit, we're affirming, we're affirming brothers and sisters, most of all, that we have him. We don't just have forgiveness. We don't just have justification, as wonderful as that is. We don't just have adoption, as wonderful as that is. We have him. We have him. Companionship, fellowship. Hebrews says we're partakers of him. Jesus rose from the grave and he came to Mary or Mary came to him. She grabbed onto him. She wanted to hold him. He says, I got work to do. Not yet. I have to ascend to my father. I have to finish the salvation of you and finish the salvation of millions and millions of people for at least the next 2,000 years. But but with what I believe must have been so much joy and so much eagerness, he says, but go and tell my brothers. It's the first time in all the gospels, maybe the first time in any of the gospels where Jesus calls someone my brother. Their salvation had been secured and they weren't just forgiven. They weren't just, ad- they weren't just forgiven. They weren't just justified. They were now his brother. She was now his sister. He had her. He had them. He has you. You have him. I imagine he was overjoyed to say that to her. Something he'd never said before. Go tell my brothers that I'm returning to my God and your God. This morning, brothers and sisters, we are partakers of the blood and the body of Christ. We affirm that through this bread and this juice, and we affirm not only that, but we are partakers of Jesus. He is our feast. He is our portion. He is our very great reward. Would you take the bread?